Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, which is a lot of letters to different parts of the world. Acts sort of explains how this went from being a Jerusalem thing to a worldwide thing. So we're, uh, this morning we're going to start in chapter 7, beginning in verse 51. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow what I'm looking at in the bulletin, starting in chapter 7, verse 51. You've probably heard of the Tuskegee Airmen before, and I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've heard it Tuskegee and Tuskegee. I'm going to say Tuskegee, and I apologize if I'm saying it incorrectly. There's also a Tuskegee University in Alabama. And the the university library at Tuskegee has a very unusual collection in the library archives. It's a collection devoted to lynchings in the United States. And it's a collection of photos and um, newspaper clippings, journal entries, oral histories, about lynchings. And, and one, I saw one description of it. It's almost like reading about an American Holocaust. And, you know, a lynching is when you get a, a group, and really we would say a mob, and they just completely do, they, they bypass any kind of legal system, due process, just take matters into their own hands, and they, they kill someone, often by hanging, but, but through whatever means. That's a lynching. And it was interesting in, in working on this passage about Stephen. And, and the man that we're about to read about is regarded in the church. We don't know this is the case, but he's presented to us in the New Testament as if he must have been the first martyr, the first Christian martyr. It was interesting to see that commentator after commentator, and even non-American commentators, said this. And I tend to think of lynching as more of an American word. I don't know all the history of the word. But they called this a lynching just uh, a, a, a mob that went violent and took matters into their own hands, did not go through due process, and just killed someone on the spot. Let me, let me set up how we get to this point. Acts chapter 7 is a long speech, and the book of Acts is full of speeches and sermons. So this is a long one. Stephen is one of the men that uh, Jake Patton preached about last Sunday when the the deacons first began, when God gave that to the church. He was one of those seven men that were set apart to serve and care for the needs of, of the body of Christ. Stephen is brought up on charges of neglecting the, the temple or misusing the temple, bringing the wrong people into the temple, and of neglecting the Torah, the, the law of Moses. So that's kind of the, the charge on the, on the table is uh, misusing or neglecting or hampering the, uh, the Torah and the temple. So he's brought up on those charges before the Jewish ruling council. So he gives this long speech. And I really would encourage you, if you're able to today, to read all of Acts chapter 7. Because it's, it's like a condensed history of redemption up to this point. It's, a re- it's like an overview of what we call the Old Testament. And in this speech, he's talking, he speaks in the first person. First person plural. He speaks in terms of our fathers and, you know, our father Abraham. And it's very us. This is our history. But it's at this part in the speech that he goes second person and he says you. And it's pretty safe to say that when he went you and said the next few things, he knew that this speech would cost him his life. And he said it. Why, why did this Jewish council get so upset? Why did, they, why did they lynch Stephen? Let's look at this passage. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 51. 
You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, the account that we've just read is both uh, tragic and has glory in it. And in that sense, it's like our world and even like us. You've made an amazing world, and the people in this room are amazing just as human beings. And our world has fallen, and we are fallen, and we know tragedy. So we pray that you would show us both from your word, both tragedy and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, not long ago, I heard somebody make this observation, and it was helpful to me as just sort of a big kind of bird's-eye view summation of things. The person said, when you think about the upbringing of somebody like my age or older, the bad guy from the vantage point of the United States, the bad guy coming up was the USSR. And the USSR was, by, at least by its public face, was atheist. It was irreligious. It was the Russian Orthodox Church, but that was more of a, seemed more like a relic from the past, not something affecting the state. By contrast now, from the vantage point of the United States, who are the bad guys? It's people who are extremely religious. It's even violent, you might even say it's violence driven by religion. And sort of a common set of lenses right now in our cultural moment is, is to, to look at that and go, okay, this is what religion does to people. I mean, it's one thing to just kind of have a nominal religious practice and upbringing, and maybe that means you go to like 
the main festival or the main feast days or whatever. But, it, but it's when people get all intense about it. You know, when, when people really get devout. When they, let's put it this way. When they really build their identity out of this religion, this outlook. Then what you get is, I'm right, you're wrong, shut up. And the ultimate expression is, I'm right, you're wrong, and we've got to rid the world of you. And you get violence. And if you do use those lenses, this passage totally works for that. If you bring that set of lenses, you got a religious man with a religious history standing in front of a group of religious men with religious history, you know, even saying shared history, but then confrontational about where they disagree, and you get a murder. Doesn't this play into what religion does to people? So let's think about this. And I, I don't think Luke recorded this just as a commentary on religious violence. But I, I think we need to at least consider that in our day and in our moment. This is religious violence, whatever you make of it. How should we think about it? And I, I just want to develop a couple of points. First off, the source of the violence. And then the effect of the violence. All right, the source of the violence and the effect of the violence. First, let's look at the source. You know, I, I've already said this, but at first glance, it's just really easy to take those lenses when people get all crazy about religion, when they get too intense, when they get too devout, then you get separation with other people, it polarizes people, and then you get violence. Verses 52 and 53. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, just think what all is going on just in those two verses. There's a divine law. You think you're keeping it. I think you're breaking it. There were prophets who announced things ahead of time. They announced the coming of the righteous one. He's talking about the Messiah. And you've murdered the violence. You've murdered the Messiah. Angels were present when this law was given that I think you're breaking and you think you're keeping. Very, very religious. Prophets, divine, uh, law, angels. Religion, is that the source? And this is where the details are really important. And if you haven't been coming up till now, just so we're on the same page, the author of Acts is Luke. The same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke. And as we've said before, New Testament scholars will will even use the term Luke-Acts like you're talking about a two-volume work. The Gospel's volume one, the book of Acts is volume two, same author. Luke is a detail guy. And he says at the beginning of the gospel and the beginning of, of uh, Acts, he writes to a guy named Theophilus. He said, look, I met with eyewitnesses. I sat down. I interviewed people to get the story straight. And this is one of those times where it's really great that he gives you this detail. Look at verse 51. Standing in front of the, in front of the uh, Jewish ruling council, he says this. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, I want you to think about these terms. Stiff-necked. That is a term that you will find in the Old Testament. Sometimes God's people will say that. Sometimes God will say it about his people. And it's a description when God's people are, are not acting like they acknowledge God or like they love him or like they fear him or want to serve him. You know, whereas if you know him and you love him and you worship him and you follow him, your neck, you might say, should be, should be flexible. Your neck should be pliable. You yield to him. You bow to him. You enjoy him. You, you kneel before him. But if you dig in your heels, 
And whether you say it out loud or not, kind of live life like, hey, I don't care what he says, or I don't care what he did. This is the route I'm going. The Old Testament term for that is stiff-necked. And believe me, people did not commonly stand in front of the Jewish ruling council and say, you're a group of stiff-necked men. I mean, they would be viewed as the intelligentsia. They would be viewed as the movers and shakers, the people that get it right, if you value your life. But then he says that stiff-necked is a group, is a description of Hebrew people who are disobedient. But then he says this, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, this is quite a different thing. Because that term, uncircumcised in the Old Testament, that can be a description that's physical or inward. Physical or spiritual, outward or inward. Outwardly, it would be everyone who's not Israelite. Circumcision was the physical sign on Jewish males that you were set apart as the people of God. Philistines, uncircumcised. Egyptians, Romans, whatever other nation, Moabites, uncircumcised. But God would say this, the real issue is your heart. Is your heart circumcised? This is actually a very theological question. Because what God is saying when he uses that sort of terminology is, the way you show up now, there is something about your heart that is wrong. And if it is not cut, and that's not an attacking cut, that's a cleansing cut. It's a fixing cut. If your heart is not circumcised, then you remain as you are and you act out as disobedient people, as stiff-necked people. Stephen doesn't just call them stiff-necked. He says, and believe me, if there's any group of men on the the face of the earth that were all circumcised, it was that group of men. But he stands before them and says, yeah, you've got that. But your insides are uncircumcised. And that's just a very Jewish way of saying, your real insides, like the control center of your real identity and being, has not been acted upon by God. Where does violence come from? Is it the religion? I mean, just think about even kind of big big brush stuff that you know about from history. The Crusades. From the Crusades to churched men who did lynchings in the United States. Professing Christians, religious. We'll just confine it to that religion. But think about Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, in the killing fields, atheists. And we could list example after example under both categories. What does that drive home is that there is something about us that is capable of great violence. And we can use religion to be violent or we can use irreligion to be violent, but it's a human condition. Why? Because the hearts that we show up with. And here's how Jesus put it. And and I'll, I'll use a big word. This is Jesus' anthropology. He says to a group of people, it is not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. There's some people that fussed at his disciples for not washing their hands the right way before they ate. Not doing a ceremonial washing like, well, now your hands are ritually impure. Now you're going to handle your food and you're going to be impure. Jesus says it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. And in our day, we could say, you know, it's not college that messes people up. 
It's not youth culture or their music that messes people up. It's not the internet that crawls inside of you and messes you up. But Jesus says, from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality. Then the next thing he says is murder. The source of violence across the board is not religion. You can use it as your platform. The source is our hearts, our hearts, until God acts upon it. But what about the effect, the effect of the violence? Let me, let me ask it this way. What do you think is the main story in this passage? And, you know, if you were close to Stephen, I would think the main story is they, they murdered my friend. And I've never seen a stoning. I never want to see a stoning. But it's a brutal way to be killed. They stoned our friend, our brother Stephen, a godly man. They lynched our friend without any justice or recourse. And you can see the sadness in the passage. Luke doesn't say a lot about it, but look in verse 2, chapter 8, verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. You know, it wasn't just like, well, he's the first martyr and we should feel good about this. People cried and wept and were sad and didn't understand why it happened. There were so many things that were going right up to this point and now he's murdered, he's lynched, and now a great persecution breaks out. Is that the lead story? Now, this is where you've got to zoom the camera out. Look at the, the verse after our passage. It's that first one in italics. This is from way back at the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. And this is Jesus talking to his disciples. After he's been raised from the dead, he's about to ascend into heaven. Chapter 1, verse 8, what does he say? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Now notice this sequence here. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I'm going to read that one more time. After the Spirit's poured out, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, in the next chapter, Luke records the Holy Spirit is poured out. And we looked at that a few weeks ago, Pentecost. So then in chapter 3, God's people are in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 4, they're in Jerusalem. In chapter 5, they're in Jerusalem. In chapter 6, they're in Jerusalem. In chapter 7, Stephen gives this speech in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 8, when he is killed, what happens? Verse 1 of chapter 8. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then look down in verse 4. Now... Those who were scattered went about, and this is the first time this verb is used in Acts, preaching the Word. This is the point in the book of Acts where the book becomes global. It hasn't gone to the ends of the earth yet, but it starts rippling out from Jerusalem, as Jesus said to do at this point. The effect of Stephen's martyrdom was the beginning of the fulfillment of the Great Commission on a larger scale. But there's another aspect I want you to see here. Um, last week, I just reread 
Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I think I'm going to read this series again, so this probably means a lot more Harry Potter sermon illustrations. So it's kind of a sorry, not sorry, apology. But, but, but you know, it's fun to read back through something. You realize that, that uh, J.K. Rowling, she's dropping all these little clues along the way that you don't know they're big clues when you read it the first time. But I noticed that the first time Harry Potter ever hears the name Albus Dumbledore is from Hagrid when he's screaming at, at, uh, at his uncle. But the first time he really learns any details is when he's on the, the Hogwarts Express and he's sitting with Ron Weasley. And uh, Ron is giving him some of the chocolate frogs. And the chocolate frogs, you know, like a, a packet will come with cards, like almost like playing cards, football cards, baseball cards. And uh, so he looks at one. The first one he gets is Albus Dumbledore. And he turns it over and, it, you know, it says that he's probably the greatest living wizard. And he figured out the different uses of dragon's blood. And he worked with a guy named Nicholas Flamel. And he loves to bowl. So he just kind of reads that and goes, huh. And what you don't realize is that the name Nicholas Flamel is going to be really important by the end of the book. That's how Luke writes. He does this more than once in the book of Acts. Like he'll say, hey, there's this guy and his name is Barnabas. And he sells a field and he gives the proceeds to the church. And then chapters later, it's Paul and Barnabas going into all these different parts of the world together. But the greatest example is in this passage. Look at what it says, chapter 7, verse 58. They cast him out, they cast Stephen out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. Verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Nobody reading this at this point could imagine what's going to happen. That the guy who's absolutely the, the tip of the spear of persecuting the church is going to become a follower of Jesus very soon after this. And from our vantage point, is going to dominate the rest of the New Testament. Not that the New Testament's about Paul. I'm just saying he is a dominant figure both in his life and in his writings. No one could have seen that coming. And Paul is sort of the perfect person to use a very interesting image. When he writes Gentile churches, because you remember Peter is the apostle to the Jews, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. When Paul writes Gentile churches, he'll speak in terms of these Gentiles having undergone a circumcision. He says it in Colossians, he says it in Philippians. And he's not talking about a physical one. There was no requirement now that men must undergo a physical circumcision. But Paul would say this because he had experienced it, that we have received, believers, have received a circumcision not done by human hands, but done by Jesus. Paul knew that the only way that I am what I am that I can do anything that I do, that I can have the privileges that I have, even eventually martyrdom, is because when I could not act on myself, when I could not change my own heart, Jesus circumcised my heart. What, what is the effect of Jesus circumcising your heart? Look, look in the passage. Look in verse uh, 59. 
And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do those two prayers remind you of anyone else's dying moments? Lord God, receive my spirit. Or do not hold this sin against them. He's praying things that Jesus prayed. All right, but you've got to be careful. Let's not, let's not make Stephen into a cartoon figure. Let's not make him into like a mythic hero figure that's not like any of us. Stephen showed up with a messed up heart just like we show up with messed up hearts. Fallen man in a fallen world. How was he conformed to Jesus? How could he pray for people throwing stones at him? The circumcision not done by human hands, but by the Lord Jesus, by the work of his Spirit. Did you know that Jesus is still, if I may say it this way, circumcising people? And I don't want to say this as a blanket statement about every person in this room. But I know that some of you have been acted upon by the risen Christ. Some of you have received a circumcision not done by hands. You know, in the Old Testament, the sign of... First, the outward sign to be part of the people, which represented an inward thing that we needed. Old Testament, it's circumcision. In the New Testament, it's what? Baptism. Uh, as a church, we can, we can pour water on you. We can wash your outside. We cannot wash your inside. But some of you, in God's mercy, God has reached in and washed the real you. Circumcised the real you. And maybe you're never going to be in a position where you're praying for those attacking you and killing you. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But you are being conformed to the image of Jesus. I'll tell you one, I I have heard some of you pray that Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. That's what Jesus prayed when he wanted there to be some other way. That my people, your people can be brought to you, Father, and there's no other way but to go to that cross the next day. I've seen some of you when everything is confusion and pain and tears, I've seen some of you pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Is that because you're better than everybody else? Is that because you showed up different? You know what it's because? It's because Jesus still circumcises people's insides. That God is still at work by his spirit. I mean, this is how real this is. There are people in this room who when they die, they'll die through all sorts of means. But what they'll experience is that they fall asleep. I don't think that Luke says he fell asleep because it was a painless death. He was stoned to death. But because of what he had and the work of God in his life and even the vision, and I can't get into this right now, but by the way, this is the only record in Scripture of Jesus not sitting at the right hand of the Father, but standing. And Luke doesn't say why, but it may have been in honor of the first martyr. The vision of the glory of God, Christ at the Father's right hand, 
knowing that he's heading to that, for him to die was to fall asleep. I remember a college student that I worked with when I was a campus minister. Vandy student, sharp, cute, probably got a great job, on the right track. And she sat down with me one day to, to tell me that she was fixated on death. She thought about it all the time and it terrified her. Because she knew it was coming and it was out of her control. Death was not going to be like falling asleep. There are people in this room who are going to fall asleep at the end. And whether you see it on this side, you will see the glory of God. You'll, you'll get what they, Christians call the beatific vision. That you'll see and experience the Lord Jesus at the Father's right hand. God is still doing that. Has your heart been circumcised by Christ? Has your heart been washed by Jesus Christ? Because that's the very thing that he calls men and women and invites men and women to receive. And for any of us, if one day we get to fall asleep, if we can be called clean before the living God, if we get to see the glory of God and touch the risen Christ, it's not because of our goodness. It is because we were acted upon. And he's still doing that in our midst. And I want to be careful here. I don't want to dress up his martyrdom and kind of tie it up with a silver bow and go, and you know what? Because he got killed, the gospel spread all over the place. But what do we see is that God can take something that is dark and tragic and just wrong across the board and send the good news all over the world because he rules over everything. Um, I was mentioning lynchings at the beginning. There was a book that just came out last month called The Blood of Emmett Till. Do you know the name Emmett Till? Because if you don't, I would like you to know this name. Emmett Till, in 1955, he's living in Chicago with his mom, and she had kinfolk back in Mississippi. And so he went to go visit some, uh, a great uncle in Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta, in a town called Money, Mississippi. Before he went, his mom, Mamie... Till Mobley, she, she kind of coached him about, there's plenty of racism in Chicago, son, but you need to know how things operate in the deep south. There's things you don't do. Here's what you say. Yes, ma'am. Don't make a lot of eye contact with white people and all that. Well, one day when Emmett Till was in Money, Mississippi, he went in the little local mom and pop grocery store and there was a lady behind the counter named Carolyn Bryant. And what seems to have actually happened is that he, he wolf whistled at her. But what she said that he did was that he came around the counter and he grabbed her by the waist and wouldn't let her go and said very inappropriate things to her and threatened her. Three days later, Emmett Till's body was found. And without going into the detail, if you've never seen a photo of his body, it is awful. And what his mother, when she received his body back in Chicago, what she decided to do was to have an open casket funeral for her son. Because she said, I want the world to see what they did to my boy. And it is gruesome. And because she was in Chicago, and there were so many news outlets, they jumped on this story. The photo of his mutilated, deformed head 
on the front of Jet Magazine was the first time Jet Magazine ever sold out of its entire printing and had to run a second printing. And, you know, movements rarely, if ever, start with just one certain moment or one certain person. It's more organic than that. But many, many people in the civil rights movement say that the moment that sort of changed everything for how the country thought about race was Emmett Till's murder. And it's interesting, his mom, I I just came across this. She used the word, I didn't want Emmett to be a martyr. She uses the word martyr. I wish it could have been both and, that he could have been the beneficiary of these things and not have to go through that. Uh, That casket is presently on display in the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture. And I've never seen it, but I'm told that when you walk into that room, it is silent when you see the small casket. And there's no way to tie that up with a silver ribbon. There's no way to tie it up with a bow. Brutal, gruesome, wrong, wicked. And God took that and did things with it. And other people were killed because it matters. And I'll just end by saying this. I think that sometimes we who live such comfortable lives, such safe lives as church people, occasionally need to say this and hear this. That I don't know that I would go to, 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 to be martyred. I don't think I would go to the gallows over Presbyterian church government, although I do believe in it. Or over infant baptism, although I do believe in it. But this news that Jesus came... Hey, Sanhedrin, he's the only man that ever kept the Torah for us and was killed by you and rose from the dead and welcomes his murderers to come to him and be cleansed, to have their hearts circumcised by his hands. And he will return. That news is so good that it would be worth our lives in the lives of our children. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we don't pray that we would become strange zealots or that we get worked up about something. What we pray is that by the work of your Holy Spirit that the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection would be so good for us, would be so real to us, and so powerful that it would be worth telling anyone that if it brings pushback, let it bring pushback. May it not be our manner, may it be the gospel if it offends. But that this is so good that we would send it and say it and proclaim it and model it wherever you would allow us. And Father, we do pray that the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. We pray for our brothers and sisters who meet and worship, who sing, who hear your word, who celebrate communion under great danger, that even today you would lift up our brothers and sisters. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.